Okay, so, um, yeah, I want to I want to start us off with a prayer. And if you guys, if any of you are interested, this book is called Fount of Heaven, and it's a book of early prayers that the early church that the early church prayed, and they writ they wrote and they prayed and they prayed them over and over again. It wasn't just spontaneous prayer that they were involved in, even though they did spontaneously pray, but they actually um, put prayers down, wrote prayers down, and they recited them. Um, and so there's a collection here of prayers um, from the early church. And I want to just pray this prayer. I want to share with you uh, this prayer before we begin this morning. It goes like this. You give life to the lifeless. And this was probably written around two or 300 um, AD, two or 300 AD. Almighty one, I know you through the worship of my heart alone. To the wicked, you are unknown, yet you are known to every soul who is devoted to you. You are without beginning and without end, more ancient than time past and time to come. No mind can grasp, no tongue express your being and extent. The only one you may behold you and face to face hear your commands and sit at your father, fatherly right hand is himself the maker of all things. He himself is the cause of all created things. He himself is the word of God, the word which is God, who was before the world which he was to make, begotten at the time when time was not yet, who came into being before the sun's beams and the bright morning star lit up the sky. Nothing was made without him, and through him all things were made. His throne is in heaven, and beneath his seat lie earth and the sea and the invincible chaos of dark night. Unresting, he is the mover of all things, the one who gives life to the lifeless. He is God, the begotten of the unbegotten, stirred to action by the betrayal of those people who scorned him. He called the nations into his kingdom to worship him as worthier offshoots of an engrafted stock. To our forefathers, it was granted to behold him, and whoever recognized him as God saw the Father also. He bore our sinful stains and suffered death with mockery. He taught us that there is a road leading back to eternal life, and that the soul returns not alone, but with the body complete enters the realms of heaven, and leaves the secret chamber of the grave empty, covered with earth which cannot hold it. That is powerful. What an amazing testimony of Jesus in that prayer right there. I mean, just the idea of them understanding that when we, when we rise in our resurrection, that we rise bodily like Christ did. We will rise bodily out of the grave. And the ground can't hold us. Death can't hold us if we are in Christ because death could not hold him. And so that is a beautiful promise from this book, from the early saints of the faith in the early church that we can hold on to this morning, the promise of eternal life and resurrection as we are found in Christ and in union with him. So I wanted to share that this morning with you as we kind of set the stage and we, um, we sort of position our hearts to receive God's word this morning and the truth of who Christ is and the power of the gospel. So as we do that this morning, let your heart be kind of um, tender to what the Lord has to say this morning through his word. Um, let your heart be malleable. Let it be um, receptive to what God has in his word for you this morning. So what a great way to start. If you want the book, Amazon, $11. $11 fount of heaven. Great way to start your morning. Great way to start your morning um, with the Lord. So, okay. So this morning we are, um, we are in, we are in the home stretch. We are going to be in our last two weeks of this series called Devoted. And it's going to be uh, really focused on, I think, the pinnacle of the reason why we gather together going to be focused on the substance 
uh, the most important thing, the capstone of why we are together and why we come together every single Sunday and why we make a commitment to be here. And that is the sacredness of the cost that Christ paid for us this morning. So we've looked at a couple different things, but this morning we're going to look at, in the next two weeks, the final two weeks, we're going to look at that. But before we do, I want to ask you guys a question really quick. Um, who likes coffee in, in, in here this morning? Okay, we got a couple coffee lovers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, what, what would you be willing to pay for a cup of coffee? What would you be willing to pay? What is your limit for a cup of coffee? Anybody? How much? $8? Okay, 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 okay. Anybody? $8 more going once, going twice. Anyone higher than that? <laughs> 10 Sandy, come on. You like coffee that much? She desperate situations. That's good. I like that. Ten bucks? Oh, man. I could get two NASCAR matchbox cars for the boys for that. Oh, come on. Anybody else? Ten. Anybody over ten? Eight, ten. No? Okay. Yeah. All right. How about, um, how about a cheeseburger? Oh, cheeseburger lovers in here tonight or today? All right, Kathy, how much would you pay for a cheeseburger if Jim wasn't with you? Jim can't be with you. <laughs> that changes everything. <laughs> yeah, ten to ten dollars, right? That's kind of the going rate. I don't think you can go to McDonald's and get a cheeseburger for under ten dollars anymore. No. Anybody else? Cheeseburgers? Anybody? How much? Oh, man. I don't know where you're going. I don't know where you're going, Brian. Okay, um, how about this? How about, how about a brand new mattress? Oh, right? How about a brand new mattress? How much are you willing to pay for a brand new mattress? Anybody? How much? 100? Whoa. I don't know. That, that, yeah, that, that mattress better be feeding you too or something. Woof. Okay, anybody else? Brand new mattress. Come on, those are nice. $1,000, okay, that's pretty reasonable. That's pretty reasonable. How about a, how about a, uh, how about a TV? For a TV? Oh, okay. How about a brand new 60-inch UHD Smart TV. How about that? Twelve hundred. Okay. All right. There we go. Three ninety nine. Man, isn't it amazing? Five years ago, they were like over a thousand. Right. Right. All right. Last one. How about a, a brand new iPhone? You're like, I don't pay for it because I never see it in my bill. That's all, that's all, it's all wrapped into one. I never have to pay for it, right? Yeah, we're willing to pay a certain amount for certain things, right? And what one person will pay for coffee, someone else won't. I, I, I'm tempted to do $10 if the situation is right. I'm tempted. But man, that's tough. That's like a whole $10 bill. Like gone. Right? But we're all kind of, right? We're all willing to pay for something and we're willing to pay for that um, because in some way it holds some value to us, right? And what one will pay for one thing, someone won't. I know Jim will not pay $10 for a cheeseburger. There is no way. That's right, you know, like she's exactly, exactly. So that's, you know, that's how it goes. But that's kind of um, what we're gonna, f uh, to a certain degree, uh, from, a, from a pragmatic way, um, thinking about um, when we come together, uh, what it costs Christ for us to be together. And, and that's going to be how we're going to end our series um, devoted um, as we think about the cost of Christ and what it costs him for you to be here right now, for you to be in this room, and for your eternal destiny to be altered and changed that is what we're going to talk about this morning. So 
I think that it's fitting that as we draw this series to an end, that we really focus on this spiritual crescendo. Um, this, this series has sort of been working to an end, and we are finding this crescendo of our devotion to the church expressed in the magnificent work of Christ and his work on the cross for us. So our time this morning in this study, it, it finds really no greater culmination or capstone than the treasure of Christ. How much do we value him? And the treasure of Christ and what he was willing to give up to secure our salvation. It's fitting this morning to end in this way and next week. To showcase the church's creation, the church's maintenance, and the church's eternal preservation being made possible by the purchasing power of the blood of Christ. We talk about purchasing power in the economy and how much our dollar can buy. But we're going to think about and consider what the blood of Christ bought over this next two weeks. For if Christ does not willingly go to the cross, if he does not stand in our place, if he does not bear the weights of our guilt, if he does not shoulder our shame and our judgment, if he does not suffer as the penalty for our sin, there is no church. And that's just the plain fact that scripture shows us. So here's our truth claim for today. The Christian must love the church. You must love the church, be devoted and committed to the church for this reason. Because Christ has purchased us, has purchased the church at a cost. And that cost is uniquely unrepeatable and unrivaled. And we'll see how that plays out over the next two weeks. But these firm and theologically stable truths are, are echoed throughout the Old and the New Testaments. God has revealed and unveiled the mystery which is Christ. And Christ leads us into salvation. The scriptures say that all the wisdom and the knowledge of God's excellent will and divine providence concerning salvation are found in Christ. And in Acts chapter 20, we're going to see Paul talk about this reality. He talks about the divine reality to the leaders of the uh, Ephesian church. As you guys know, in, in Acts 20, maybe some of you are familiar with this, Paul has this, this uh, conversation with the Ephesian uh, leaders as he's going back to Jerusalem. And um, we're going to look at this conversation, and we're going to look at how Christ posits the cost of Christ to be the capstone uh, of the Christian faith and the reason for our gathering the reason for our devotion to him. So it's upon these pillars of truth, this absolute truth, that we can have confidence and trust that Christ is building and maintaining a life of sacrificial worship on our behalf for the body of Christ. It is on these tremendous pillars that we find this to be supported. Our devotion to the church rests squarely on the blood of Christ. The cost of what he paid for you and for me. So let's set the stage. Acts 20, 17 to 29. This is kind of how we are to break it down this morning. Paul begins his journey from northern Greece back to Jerusalem. And this is found in Acts chapter 20, verse 6. He sails past Ephesus, where there is a church that he planted, and he lands in another town called Miletus. And we find him there for a, a moment, and he calls for the elders of the Ephesian church. Now, the church in Ephesus was about 30 miles uh, northwest of Miletus, but Paul didn't want to stay in Ephesus because he was really making haste to get back to Jerusalem. 
He wanted to get back there, and he knew if he stopped in Ephesus that it would probably take more time. He would probably spend more time there than he wanted to. So he sails past Ephesus to the smaller town. Well, it's actually a bigger town, but there's, um, there's, there's, I don't think there's a church there at this point. And he calls the elders to him. And this is what he does. He delivers a final farewell speech. Paul knows that most likely he's never going to see these guys again. He had spent two years with them, preaching and sharing the gospel with them. And he probably knows in the back of his mind, as he makes his way to Jerusalem, that his life is in danger of preaching the, for preaching the gospel. And he's going to face persecution, and quite possibly a trial and conviction and death at some point. Now, obviously, that doesn't happen in Jerusalem. It happens in Rome. But we know that Paul is making haste to Jerusalem. He, he knows, this is my last speech. This is my last interaction with you guys. This is my last in-person instruction that I can give you. And his last words, we should consider to be lasting words to remember. So these words that we are going to look, how Paul presents his ministry, how Paul presents the gospel to them, and how he urges them and reminds them of many things, we are to take heed and to understand, we are to take notice that these things are important to the church. Because these are the things that Paul urged and focused on, knowing that this might be the last time he is face to face with these leaders in the Ephesian church. So this is what Paul does. He highlights these things that we're going to look over in the next two weeks. He first defends the gospel and his ministry. He urges alertness for the, uh, the leaders. He reminds them of their responsibility. He warns of false teachers. And then finally, he recalls the cost that Christ had made for them. What he had done for them and what he had purchased on their behalf. So here we read in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 to 29. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're just going to go down and break it down this morning. Starting in verse 17, it says this, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And we'll stop there. I want us to come back here to verse 18 through 21. I want us to see something, and that is this, that Paul had a high priority on perseverance. He had a high priority on perseverance. And this is why. Because the value of Christ's life given for the church produces an unquenchable zeal to boldly declare Christ. It is because of his life that is given to us and given for us and it is because of his blood that is shed for us that produces in us an unquenchable zeal to declare him. 
to make him known with our lives. This is the proper response to the cost that he paid. Paul lived among those men and women in the Ephesus church for over two years. Acts 19, 10, we see that for two years. He preached to them. He lived with them. They saw his life up close and personal. They saw how he dealt with perseverance and persecution and difficulty and affliction when he brought the gospel. They saw his integrity. They saw his humility in his conduct and his perseverance through every trial and every persecution. His perseverance was embodied by an unyielding um, devotion to the gospel. Even in the face of Jewish um, persecution. He would go into the synagogues and preach Christ. But he would not last long there. As they would quickly make plans to get rid of him. So he went around house to house and in different lecture halls around Ephesus, preaching the gospel. And the Ephesian leader saw firsthand his humility. Paul never aspired to be a celebrity preacher. He never desired to gain followers through deception or misrepresentation. But he gave the Ephesian church and that whole area the gospel of Christ in its fullness. And he did not round the edges of it. He did not apologize for it. But he declared it with boldness. Because he knew that was the only way they would be saved. They could not be saved by a deluded gospel. They could not be saved by a deceptive gospel. But he preached the whole gospel. I want you to see here in verse uh, 18 through 21, Look at what Paul says. He says, You saw who I was. You saw my humility. You saw my tears and my trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews and the persecution of them. But look what he says. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God. Paul didn't select his crowd. He didn't select his audience. He didn't gather those who he thought would be receptive to the gospel. He preached it, and he declared it, and he gave no apologies for it, and it didn't matter who was listening. He never altered the content of it, but he gave it as it was, and he had a clear conscience about that. That idea of shrink, Right? He never shrank. He never withheld. That is this word here in the Greek, hupastello, which means to, to, to withhold under or to cower or to conceal or to withdraw. Paul never withdrew from his ministry. He never concealed any aspect of the gospel, but he gave it to them in its fullness. He brought it out into the light and never concealed it. But he declared it. He announced it. He made it known. It was like a report. He would go from house to house declaring, reporting of what Christ had done for him. And in the face of ridicule and rejection and personal harm, Paul never cowered. He never concealed the difficult truths of the gospel. It is so easy to do that. It is so easy to focus on the good parts and sort of withdraw from the difficult ones. But he didn't. He announced all the excellencies of the cross, all the excellencies of Christ, and he never equivocated. He never held back. He never compromised its rigidness sometimes and its exclusiveness. Paul's saying, you can't get to God any other way. He said it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, did not come 
proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear. Paul saw and experienced the same depth of persecution in Corinth that he did in Ephesus. He said, I came to you in fear, not knowing if I was going to leave that town alive. But I came to you preaching to you one thing, and that was Christ and nothing else. I had nothing else to give you. I didn't give you lofty speech or wisdom or philosophy, or, or spiritual um, Gnosticism, or, or secret knowledge. I didn't come to you with a philosophical approach, giving you human-centered wisdom. I brought to you the gospel of Christ, and the only way I could do that is through the power of the Spirit. And the only way you could believe is through the power of the Spirit. No man on his own will receive the gospel. No man is on his own will trust in Christ. No man or woman on his own will make a decision for Christ in accord with their own rational thinking. But they come to him, they hear the gospel, and they receive only by the power of the Spirit. It takes a spiritual uh, work in the heart of a person to turn that hardened heart soft. And so that's what he did in Corinth. In Galatians 6.14, this is what he says. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul had no desire to please the world. He had no desire to please the culture. He had no desire to alter his message so that it would be more easily received. But he gave them Christ and Christ alone. And he preached repentance. Look at this in verse 21, Acts 20, verse 21. He says, I came both to Jews and Greeks, and this was my, my message, repentance toward God and faith in Christ. This idea of repentance in the Greek is metanoia. It means to think differently, to reconsider and more specifically, it means moral compunction. It means sorrow. It means remorse. It means contrition. And that is this idea that we are turning back to God. We are turning to Christ for the very first time. But even as Christians, we practice this, this, spiritual, um, this spiritual discipline of repentance as we continually turn back to Christ. We are continually remorseful for the things we do and say. And we continually come back to him to receive forgiveness, knowing that he has gone to the cross and he has paid for every sin. He has dealt with the guilt. He has dealt with the shame and the condemnation. We come freely to him, boldly into his presence to say, Lord, forgive me once again. This idea of repentance is that very concept. Paul says, I preached repentance. I preached for them to turn to Christ. Why? Because he was not interested in gaining a fan base. If Paul was here today, he would not be checking his Instagram to see how many followers he had. He was not interested in a fan base. He was not interested in winning people over with a deluded gospel. He was not interested in appealing to the masses by requiring nothing from them. If you're going to follow Christ and believe, it's going to cost you everything. He had no desire to teach his audience what they wanted to hear. He rejected a message of self-improvement, subjective morality, spiritual enlightenment. Instead, what did Paul do? He preached a gospel of repentance. And that gospel of repentance leads to one thing, self-denial. The lordship of Christ. He is Lord over you. That means you are willing to obey. 
unconditionally. That is not an easy message. Neither today or when Paul was preaching. Paul understood this, that the priority of repentance could not be concealed nor undersold. For Paul knew it was the lifeblood of a Christian surrender to the Lordship of Christ. It is the lifeblood for our spiritual work. It is the lifeblood of our spiritual life in Christ. And repentance was profitable for them. It produced something in them. It taught and they received it and they practiced it. And repentance, when it is taught and received and practiced, reflects a saving faith. Not only that, it produces sanctification in every believer's heart. So for Paul, that was really important to him because he understood the treasure of Christ and what he did and what he offered and what he achieved and obtained with his own blood. Secondly, verse 22 to 25, we look at this. Paul was not into self-preservation. See, the natural man wants to preserve their life at all costs. We go through steps every single day to preserve our life. We go through steps every single day to care for our life and to care for people around us. And to a certain degree, Paul ate and Paul traveled Right? And Paul, Paul took care of his life. Right? He, 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 didn't, he didn't put his life in such danger. He, he understood there was value in his life because of his ministry. Right? But, but that wasn't something that Paul put above his ministry or his proclaiming of the gospel. See, Paul didn't, Paul didn't consider his life to be more valuable than his message. And so Paul would, would, would look at his life and there was this sense that the value of Christ's life given for the church would propel him to take risks with his own. Self-preservation was never a pursuit for Paul. He never esteemed it very much. He never considered his life to be of tremendous value in comparison to the, to the enterprise of his gospel ministry and the substance of his message. In light of this inestimable value of the grace of Christ, Paul considered his own life to be of little consequence or consideration, further displaying in, in this muted sort of um, underwhelming fashion, this, this humility that had transformed him. Paul was so transformed and, and, and by the grace of, of Christ that the humility forced him and showed him how much more valuable Christ was than his own life. And life can present us with many pursuits and persuade us to chase many ventures. But one thing we have to understand as believers is we have a ministry of grace to proclaim in our own way. Our own lives, there is a ministry of grace in Christ to share with others. And when this ministry of grace and this grace of Christ is embraced and believed, it alters the eternal condition of every human soul. That is a big responsibility. But it is one that God has entrusted each one of us with in our own particular way. We are to be ministers of the grace of Christ to anyone who God puts in our life. And finally this, verse 26 to 27. There was a necessity for the entire gospel. I want us to read this here. 
Paul says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink, here's that word again, shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. There is a necessity for the entire gospel. Paul understood it. Why? Because he considered the cost of Christ to be invaluable. He understood what Christ had given up for his ministry. And he thought to himself, how can I not preach this entire thing? How can I not show the world and demonstrate and declare to the world the greatness of this unbelievable grace that has been offered to them? How can I, how can I shrink back? How can I conceal any of this considering what Christ has done for me? I can't. So he understood that the value of Christ's life given for the church necessitated the declaring of the whole gospel. Not a portion of it, not a tiny bite-sized piece of it, but the whole thing, all of it, in its totality, in all of its splendor and wonder. In other words, what Paul is saying here to the Ephesian elders, he's saying, I leave you with a clear conscience. I leave here knowing that I have given everything to you that Christ revealed to me. I have not held anything back from you, but I have proclaimed to you the fullness of the counsel of God. So he departs them and bids farewell to them with a clear conscience, knowing that whatever awaits him in Jerusalem, no matter what happens in Jerusalem, that he never wavered from teaching than the complete message of the gospel. Paul could rest assured that it would not be from a lack of revelation that the people would believe in Christ. Refusing the gospel would be a result of one's own hardened heart and reluctance to truly assess their spiritual condition and their need for Christ. Paul knew he gave them everything they needed to preach and to boldly proclaim so that people could be saved. Why? Because he understood the cost. And for us this morning, that is something that we must reckon with in our own heart. Do we understand the cost? Do we fully consider and understand what Christ has done for me and for you? And will that motivate you to love his church? This idea of whole, Paul says, I, I gave you the whole counsel of God. This idea is the sense of there's a thoroughness. There, there, there's no lack and what he gave them. He, he did not piecemeal the gospel. He did not divide it or scatter it. He did not present it in its parts, leaving out some and, and not others. It was, this was not a, a gospel buffet that Paul was serving. In other words, the, the, those that were hearing, they had no liberty to serve themselves. You just couldn't go up to the gospel buffet and just decide what you wanted and what you didn't like. You couldn't, you couldn't receive the message in partiality. You couldn't decide that you liked this aspect of the gospel, but you needed to reject this aspect of the gospel. You know, like when I go to the buffet, man, I'm just going for the worst food there is, right? I'm going for the pleasure food. I'm going for the food that makes me happy. I'm not going for the salad. I'm not going for the cucumbers. I'm going for like, well, unless it's sushi, I'll go for the sushi, okay? But I'm going for like the chicken fingers. I'm going for like the onion rings, you know, and I'm bypassing, you know, I'm good, good with the tomatoes, uh, good with the avocado, you know, I, I'm also, maybe I'll take some of, you know, I'll take a dessert here 
And you know, I really like the pizza, non-dairy of course, you know. But I go up there and I'm thinking, especially Ruby Tuesdays, that's a good one when they were around. Anybody? Ruby? Yeah, right? I wish they had a Golden Corral here, but I don't know where to drive for that. But anyway, <clears throat> what Paul didn't do is, if you think of the gospel as a pizza, he didn't slice it and serve certain portions of it depending on the crowd, depending on the audience. And that's really what this means. He gave them the whole gospel. It wasn't divided. And he gave them the whole gospel. He gave them the fullness of the counsel of God. In other words, he gave them the very will of God for their lives. He gave them the very will of God as it concerns salvation through the gospel. That's what he said. He said, I gave you everything you needed. I didn't shrink back, but I declared to you the whole counsel of God. It was, it was in its fullness, and I never never compromised on any piece of it. And we must remind ourselves of that this morning. The gospel is something to be reminded of each day. It is a spiritual discipline for us. And when it is employed, it works a beautiful assurance of salvation. That is why I love that book. When I wake up and read the prayers of the old church, it just brings me back to the dynamics of the gospel and what Christ has done. And it causes me to rejoice and have joy in what has been accomplished for me and for you. And I love being here, a part of this place, and, and celebrating that every Sunday by the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't rejoice in the cross outside of the Spirit's urging or the Spirit's power. When I was not saved, when I didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me, I could care less about Christ. I, I was alien to him. I was separated from him. I was hostile to him. I was an enemy of him because I had no idea out of my own ignorance what he had accomplished for me. But it is only when the Holy Spirit comes and the power of his transforming uh, life, when he comes, he transforms my heart, he conforms my mind. So my affections change, my thoughts change. I look at Christ totally different. I can never look at him any different than I do now. But this is the power of the Holy Spirit that comes and, and completely transforms a person so that once the things they love, they hate, and the things they once hated, they love. I used to love sin, and now I hate it. I used to hate Christ, and now I love him. I used to serve myself, and now I want to serve everyone else. Sometimes. No, I'm just kidding. kind of forced into that with four kids at home but that's all right but i want to be reminded of the gospel every single day and i want to i want to i want to wrap this up i know we've gone long today um, but the necessity of declaring the gospel in its entirety is one that has been abandoned in many corners and circles of the evangelical church the whole gospel is 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 very rarely being preached unfortunately and Paul prophesied this in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. He says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine or sound teaching, but they have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, be sober-minded. So many just be want to told what they want to hear. And that's, that is a way, a pragmatic way for the church to get more people in the seats. And I know I sound like a broken record in this, but it's really hard for me to see. Because people aren't coming to Christ through the gospel. 
They're coming to Christ because they think that he can just be their self-improvement tool or their divine genie or their butler or a vending machine. I say this, I do this, I pray this, I get this. Right? And people will acquire for themselves teachers that tell them what they want to hear. They just want to feel good leaving the church. They want to feel great about themselves. They want to love themselves more. And, 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 and Christ has called us to a, a life of self-denial. A life of self-denial where he is Lord. And the only way we understand that is through understanding the gospel. And Paul knew this. And we are under no illusions as the church. There are both wonderful and difficult aspects of the gospel, of the good news. But we must be prepared to share the entirety of it without partiality, not diminishing portions of it so as to deny the will of God and devalue the preciousness of Christ's life for the church. That's what happens when the church diminishes and leaves out and scatters and divides the gospel and only presents the parts that seem appealing what we are doing is we are diminishing the preciousness of Christ's life and the will of God. Because this is hard to hear. There are good parts and there are hard parts. Matthew 20, 28, this is great. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is beautiful. That is hope. That is a message of hope and encouragement to everyone who hears. But Jesus also says this in John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sin. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. No one wants to hear that. Why did Jesus say it? Why? Because unbelief towards Christ is the one sin that will cause all of your sin to be carried with you to death. There is no other way. You must believe in him. Matthew 7, 14, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What? Did you just hear that? For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few, not many. That's hard to hear, but it's the truth. Why does he say this? because we cannot embrace a saving gospel on our own terms. We don't dictate how we're saved, but we submit to Christ and his perfect plan and the way he has prescribed for us to receive salvation. We submit to his conditions. We don't determine them because he has established them and he is Lord not us. That's hard. Especially to a culture that just wants to live life on their own terms and wants to live life in their own manner and wants to do whatever they want. But Christ said, you can't come in with all of your stuff. You have to deny yourself and pick up your cross and live a sacrificial life for me. You deny your desire. You deny your wants. My plan is better. And lastly, John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Oh, 
Gosh, that's hard to hear. But here is why it is said. Because obedience to Christ is the natural product of saving faith. Obedience to Christ is the natural product of saving faith. And so we must believe, and not only believe, obey him, and be led by him, and deny ourselves, and take up our cross, and say, God, whatever I want for my life, I reject, I don't need it, but I look to you to lead me, to guide me, to show me, and I am under the will of your Lordship, and I submit to you alone. And so these things about the gospel are hard to understand, they are hard to hear, but it doesn't mean that we are not responsible to share them with love and with grace and with kindness. Because Christ has done everything possible to make a way for me and you to experience his grace. He has made a way through his very blood and through his very body that is broken and his blood that was shed on the cross for you to experience all the benefits of his grace and all the beauty of eternal life and all the goodness of his mercy and all the kindness of his character. But we can't come any way we want. And we can only believe by hearing one message. And that is the message of the gospel. And that is a pillar for our existence. That is the cost of Christ when we consider it. Will it motivate us to be committed to one another? That is essentially the building blocks of our faith. It is what we build this church on. It is that objective reality of his blood and his death on our behalf so that we can enjoy him and enjoy one another. Amen? Amen. Let's stand this morning.